Let us let us read Nehemiah 9 NLT. Uh, I want us to read from the same version. I'm not against any other translation. It's just that so we we read from the same text. Okay. Nehemiah is uh, we we we're going through the book of Nehemiah, and I realized that uh, I post this in a leadership group. The book, in terms of narrative, it's divided into two sections. Uh, chapter 1 to 6 is about building the wall, building the gates, building physical infrastructure. And then you move to chapter 7. Somebody said to me, well, if Nehemiah is about building the wall, I think we should stop at uh, chapter 6 because the wall is already built. Let's move on to, to other certain topics. Well, building the wall is only the first half of the story. Nehemiah chapter 7 onwards to 13 is about building the people, the community, and this is also important, even more important. In a sense, I think it kind of reflects the journey of MPC. We're done with the infrastructure building. We got a building, we secure a service for the east, for the west. In the city, we have a building now. Uh, as with Nehemiah, he went through all this negativity and, and the slander and all the enemies trying to to poke him and we experience all that in MPC. There's so many negativity flowing around among us as well. But in due time, we, we start to subside and, and just come to terms with things. And then we, we start to reconcile among us. And and well, we're done securing the building and dealing with all that. And as we move on to Nehemiah, the second part of Nehemiah, uh, I pray that MPC will also move on from the past issues. And then we have to start building the community. This year, the theme, Raise Up and Build, it's not just about building our organizational things. It's about building our community. Let's let's forget about uh, the things that's done and dusted. Let us move on. God has given us something new. Let us let us start to build the people, the community, as with Nehemiah now. And Nehemiah is, is moving on now. People started to, to come back from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem. Not, every, not all Israelites live in Jerusalem. Uh, but some of the Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalemites uh, who went to exile in Babylon, uh, they heard that, oh, the, the city was repaired now. Uh, it has walls. It has gates. Uh, let's come back. Mudik pulang kampung. Let's go back to our hometown. And they started to resettle in Jerusalem and start to build a community. Nehemiah chapter 8 talks about the word of God. Building a community founded nothing else other than the word of God as a foundation. That is important. They heard the word of God being read to them from morning till day. That was last chapter last week. Now Nehemiah chapter 9. It's amazing. Uh, they're doing something else. After they listened to the word of God, they did a confession of sin. It's quite a long confession because they have a long list of sin. Uh, as with us as well. So we will read slowly and let us enjoy. Let's take time to read through the word of God, okay? All right? On October 31st, uh, you know, NLT changes the, the Hebrew dating into our international calendar. The people assembled again, and this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. They remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read aloud to them. This was last chapter. Then for three more hours they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. This is a service happening for six hours, right? The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Katniel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani stood on the stairway of the Levites and cried out to the Lord their God with loud voices. 
Let's stop there. Don't worry. There are 38 verses. Uh, we'll go to slowly and enjoy. Like eating, slowly. Enjoy. Don't, don't rush. I want you to look at verse 3. It says here, For three hours they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. What an amazing pairing. It, it doesn't seem to, to go. When you confess sins, you, you say about bad things. When you worship, you pray, you say about good things. How could these things go together? You know, it, isn't it nice uh, when we praise God, we also you know, don't talk about the bad things, like, talk about the nice things. But Christianity, our God, is not a God who is who's whitewashing things. He, he doesn't put makeup and, and cover up things. He doesn't teach us to be, to be uh, hypocrites. Admit sins, praise God. The goodness of God, the holiness of God, is not afraid to to be put side by side with human sinfulness. In fact, it is human sinfulness and our weakness in light of the greatness and the love of and the holiness of God. That is that is the point. That is the paradigm of our faith. And I want you to keep this at the back of your mind as we read through this chapter because it's it's rather thematic about what is happening here. The contrast between God who is worthy to be praised and worshipped and the weakness of people. And even in that, God is glorified. God is not teaching us, talk the good things about you and then about me. It, it, you know, it matches so that the, the atmosphere could be good. Don't, don't talk about negative, negative things. Let's make the, the mood jolly. God is not like that. Confess your sin, it's okay. All the bad things. It's a long list of sin, as we can see, 38 verses while praising God. The holiness of God, in contrast to the weakness of us, it's fine. God is okay with that. Actually, it, it puts uh, things in the right perspective. So I want you to stop and think about it. That's the first point I want to make today. God and us, good and evil, strength and weakness, it's okay. That's the paradigm God wants us to see as we read through this chapter. Verse 5 and 6. Then the leaders of the Levites, Jeshua, Katmiel, Bani, Hashabneah, Serebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Petayah, called out to the people, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, for He lives from everlasting to everlasting. Then they prayed, May your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You preserve them all and the angels of heaven worship you. As we read uh, to the end, later you will find that uh, starting from verse 5, they are narrating, retelling the history of Israel. It is like a summary from Genesis to Nehemiah in terms of story. And if you think about it, why did they start? At creation, why did they start by proclaiming that God, you create the heaven and the? It's almost like oh, you know, too much introduction, Masabasi. But why did why didn't they just start straight from the age of the kings? Like, why did they have to go all the way to Adam even before that to creation, in the confession of sin? Why did they have to say that? Why did they have to emphasize that God is creator? The first point of this confession is this, that God is sovereign, He is in control, He has the dominion 
over everything. Nothing spells authority more than creation, right? That is the uh, the the ultimate authority you can have. If you create something, you own it. Period. Right? There's so many forms of authorities. For example, I'm uh, I'm the boss of uh, Cindy. Uh, Cindy is my my junior. I'm a CEO. I have authority over her, but very limited. I cannot abuse her. You know, I cannot bully her. She's protected by law. Authority, even me as CEO, is limited. One day when Cindy marries a guy, the husband has authority as the head of the house. But even the husband's authority is limited over her. Cindy, uh, back in Medan, uh, has a father. Her parents have authority over her, but even that is limited. See, in every relationship, authority has its limitation. But if you create something, you have ultimate authority. Unquestionable, because that thing is yours. The fact that Genesis, uh, the story of our salvation starts in Genesis, talks about creation. It is very important because it tells you that God is sovereign over everything. That nothing created itself. If something exists in the beginning and it wasn't God, it could be God. Because that thing is not created. But if God creates everything, then he has control and dominion over everything. That's what it is very important for us to tell the gospel starting from creation. If you don't have the base that God is sovereign over everything, everything else, other arguments you build on top of that could collapse. But if we start with that, that God is sovereign over everything, then we can talk about God. Then he is God. And to know that God is sovereign over everything, it should give us peace. The whole chapter is long. It is, uh, it is uh, a recapitulation of, of what's been happening in the history of Israel. And we need to do this as Christians. We need to sit and take time to remember the history, uh, not only our own Christianity, but Christianity over time. That God is just even in a smaller uh, sphere. Let's talk about our own life with God. Sometimes we have this spiritual amnesia. You know, God is good. Yes, God is powerful. Yes. God is awesome, yes. Sometimes we forget. We need to take time and be reminded again that, yeah, actually, He is good. And many times we read in the Bible, people of Israel, they forget how good God is, how powerful God is, how God is actually God, the, the one and only God. And they, even in a short period, they started to rebel again and follow other gods and follow this God and that God. And then they come back to God again. After a certain generation, then they come back again moving astray, and then come back again. It's amazing how we have spiritual amnesia in, in faith. We need to be constantly reminded that God is God. And they started with that. Reminding themselves, the first point from verses 5 to 6, that God is in control of everything because He creates everything. When you worry about your job, you, oh, I work, I work for Westpac. Bang. Oh, so many redundancy. Is God also sovereign over Westpac? Yes, He created Westpac indirectly. Because anything you can think of is created by something is created who is what that is created by something that is created by someone who is created by God. So indirectly, God is sovereign over everything. I work for Tesla. Is God does God have a share in Tesla? And is he powerful? Yes, God is powerful over everything. He has dominion over everything. Even the heart of people and leaders are in God's hand. What about my education? Is God sovereign over my grades in Melbourne Uni? Yes, He is. Uh, what about my family? Can God help me? What about all the difficulties? Yes, yes, yes. God creates everything. He has dominion over everything. And we need to be reminded of that at times. Actually, 
He is in control of things. We have to start there. Then we can talk about the next points. First, we need to establish that God is capable. And throughout generations, throughout the time, throughout history, He is God. He owns everything. He is powerful over everything. And after establishing that, they move on. Let's read 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him from Ur of the Chaldeans and renamed him Abraham. When he had proved himself faithful, you made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parisites, Jebusites, and Yigdashites. And you have done what you promised, for you are always true to your word. Covenant, promise, and fulfillment. God is faithful. After the Israelites uh, remember, reminded themselves that God is powerful, now they remember the second important point. Not only that God is powerful, He is faithful, He has bound Himself with a covenant to us, and He keeps His promise. If the first thing that they reminded themselves is God is a powerful God, the second point is God is a promise keeper. You know, it's amazing about this spiritual amnesia thing. For me as well, sometimes I'm amazed of myself, of how faithless I am at times. I face a certain problem, and then I begin to fear and be anxious. And somehow, the Holy Spirit often talked to me, in the past, have I given you any reason to fear? If I say to Lisa, Lisa, let's have coffee next Friday, and Lisa comes to plantation uh, at four, as I promised, she waited 30 minutes, know me, 45 minutes, know me. And then he called, she called me, I forgot, sleeping at home. I said, okay, let's reschedule next Friday. She comes to Plantation Cafe next Friday. I said, Lisa, Lisa, I'm already here, where are you? I'm in front of the counter, Coconel, where are you? I'm in front of the, co uh, the coffee shop as well, Manchester Press. Oh no, wrong coffee shop. She said, okay, so sorry, let's reschedule next Friday. Does, does she have a reason to doubt that the third time I will come? Yes, I have given her reasonable doubt because I have been proven to be a bad promise keeper. Sometimes in life, we, we, we face problems and we start to be anxious. And let me ask you this. Think, has in the past God given you a reason to doubt Him? Was He ever late? Was He ever once incapable of fulfilling what He promised you? Was He ever once being an abandoning God. And I often think about it. Actually, in God's track record in my life, I have no reason to doubt Him. But still, something happens. And I, I'm afraid. I worry. I'm anxious about things. He's never given me a reason to doubt Him. He's always punctual. He's always reliable. He's always trustworthy. He is a God who keeps His promise. And Israel needed to remind themselves of that. We need to remind ourselves of that. We face problem, look back, and ask this. Had in the past God ever let me down? I'm sure the answer will be no. Right? God is a promise keeper. He is reliable. He is faithful. He keeps his himself for us in a covenant. Uh, the form of covenant the most the, the only covenant form that I think still exists now is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And that is an institution that God established to teach us about the sort of relationship He has with us. It's like a marriage. God 
binds himself to us in in a marriage that is a covenant sometimes we think about the old testament right we we misunderstand the old testament we think the old the, the new testament is about grace the old testament is no grace is about the law it's actually uh, not correct let me ask you this was israel given the law first and then after they perform god gave them the covenant or were they given the covenant first and then came the law actually the covenant came first god binds himself to israel and then he gave them the the the, the rules and all the regulations but first actually their relationship with god is secured within that covenant even in the old testament god is operating in grace the only reason the new testament is a better covenant is not because the problem with the covenant the problem is with us and now in the new covenant we have the holy spirit in our heart that enables us to live in that covenant so god is, has always been graceful even in the old testament and that's the second point that israel needed to remind themselves the first one god is sovereign if he creates everything we don't have to worry yes we've been through a lot of bad things we we've been attacked by the babylons the persians and we are under occupations but now we are back on this land and it, we need to establish something the truth that god is powerful and we can trust him he is trustworthy he is a promise keeper we we are really bad promise keeper there's a man movement in in the united states uh, it's called the promise keepers this is like the christian man network this is really good they have really good materials they they train men to be promise keepers because men are really bad promise keepers and as men we we are the head of the family we become husband we become fathers and we 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 let wives and children down because we are bad at keeping our promises and we give this bad image of fatherhood of manhood whereas god is the perfect man the perfect father and he is a promise keeper the next point after the verse 8 verse 9 this is a bit long 9 to 15 you saw the misery of our ancestors in egypt and you heard their cries from beside the red sea you displayed miraculous signs and wonders against pharaoh his officials and all his people for you knew how arrogantly they were treating our ancestors you have a glorious reputation that has never been forgotten you divided the sea for your people so they could walk through on dry land and then you hurled their enemies into the depths of the sea they sank like stones beneath the mighty waters you led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way you came down at mount sinai and spoke to them from heaven you gave them regulations and instructions that, that were just and decrees and commands that were good you instructed them concerning your holy sabbath and you commanded them through moses your servant to obey all your commands decrees and instructions the first one god is the creator he is powerful he is sovereign second one god is a covenant making god he is faithful he is true he is a promise keeper we can trust and the third one our god is a god who cares that's why he walks with us that's why he teaches us that's why he instructs us he could have not taken time to to go through all this and just you know i don't know kill us all or anything because we are so rebellious but god actually like a father being patient walking with us as narrated by verses 9 to 15 the israelites came to the sea they winched whining complaining god split the sea so they could walk right through it and then 
they start to whinge again. We're hungry. We better go back in Egypt and then God send manna. God send the meats, uh, the free chicken, free birds. And God was faithful. He he was teaching them like teaching little kids, giving them decrees and instructions. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. God was sitting next to them, walking with them, instructing them, teaching them. Is this an image of an authoritarian God? This is an image of a father. We misunderstand the, the Old Testament. If we, read, if we read it and we think God is so mean. Read again. This is an image of a father who, who is teaching and instructing his children. And God is a caring God. Teaching someone, is, uh, especially when, when they're stubborn and hard-headed, is, is a pain. Yeah, that is a Indonesian term, makanati, uh, eat liver. <laughs> it, it's, it's really eating away in your uh, body when you try to teach someone who is so stubborn. But God, in his patience, is teaching them. Walk with them. I remember uh, one time I, I had a dream. In my dream, I was, I was dancing with God. And then I, as I look around, there are so many uh, fragile stuff around me. There's like a, like a Gucci, not, not the bag, like China vase and all the things and the ceramics. And like, oh, I need to be careful. Sometimes I, I make the wrong moves and I, I bump into them and then I fall. And God says, it's okay. I'm teaching you to move. I'm teaching you how to step. I'm teaching you how to navigate through these things. You will make mistakes. It's okay. Just follow me. Just follow my rhythm. And I think that that image stuck with, in my head. That is the, the image of my Christian life. I keep making mistakes. But God is patient. Keeps on guiding me and teaching me. Every step, every move, different rhythm. I make mistakes and I bump into another vase and it breaks. It's fine, God says. Move along, I'm teaching you. Our God is a teacher. He is patient with us. He is an instructor. He is a father. And Israel needed to remind themselves of that. God is not just powerful. He's not just faithful, Thomas Keeper. But he's also God who cares, who takes time to teach his children. We are up to 15. Oh no, 15 heaven. You gave them bread from heaven when they were hungry and water from the rock when they were thirsty. You commanded them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn to give them. This is still part of the Last point, that God is God who cares, who instructs and provides and teaches. Now the next part, this is the last part. It's a bit long, but mind you, read with me, okay? 16 to 21. But our ancestors were proud and stubborn, and they paid no attention to your commands. They refused to obey and did not remember the miracles you had done for them. Did not remember, right? Spiritual amnesia. Sorry, again. Instead, they became stubborn and appointed a leader to take them back to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them, even when they made an idol shaped like a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. They committed terrible blasphemies. But in your great mercy, you did not abandon them to die in the wilderness. The pillar of clouds still led them forward by day, and the pillar of fire showed them the way through the night. 
You sent your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not stop giving them manna from heaven or water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. For the forty years, God took care of the Israelites, and he was patient. They were very naughty and rebellious, but God in his mercy, instead of leaving them to die, he could easily. He kept providing for them, walking with them, patiently teaching and instructing them. Again, we see the contrast that I talked about in the beginning between our errors, our tendency to make mistakes and to fall into sin and God's mercy. It's like a cycle as we lead on to 20 to 23. Then you helped our ancestors conquer kingdoms and nations, and you placed your people in every corner of the land. They took over the land of King Sihon of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You made their descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and brought them into the land you had promised to their ancestors. Oh, 24, 25 as well then, sorry. They went in and took possession of the land. You subdued whole nations before them. Even the Canaanites who inhabited the land were powerless. Your people could deal with these nations and their kings as they pleased. Our ancestors captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took over houses full of good things, with cisterns already dug in vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate until they were full and grew fat and enjoyed themselves in all your blessings. Wow. Again, history tells about the blessing of God. But regardless of all the good things that God has done, again, a cycle happens. But despite all this, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who warned them to return to you. And they committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies, who made them suffer. But in their time of trouble they cried to you, and you heard them from heaven. In your great mercy you sent them liberators, who rescued them from their enemies. And I will read 28. But as soon as they were at peace, <laughs> your people again committed evil in your sight, and once more you let their enemies conquer them. Yet whenever your people turn and cry to you again for help, you listen once more from heaven. In your wonderful mercy, you rescued them many times. This is a short list. This is a summary of what has been happening throughout the, the days of the judges and the kings, all the generation. The same cycle. They rebel. God disciplined them, punished them. They cried in repentance. God saved them. And then the same thing happened and happened again. If you go through 29 to 38, it's basically the same story. And this is the, the last point I want to make. God, the first one, God is God the creator. He is powerful. We need to remind ourselves that he is powerful. Then, and then secondly, that he is faithful. He keeps his promise. And then thirdly, that God is a God who cares, who, who instructs and teaches and provides for us. And lastly, God is a God who is patient despite of our mistakes. I mentioned earlier about looking back has God ever let me down? No. Sometimes I experience something and I fear and I, I become anxious. And God reminds me, have I ever given you a reason to, to doubt me in the past? Actually, no. He was never late. He's always in time to help me. He's always there. He's always reliable. He's always good. 
And the second thing we need to remember when we look back at our Christian history, our, our walk with God, it is this, despite of our failings to please Him, to obey Him, isn't He always forgiving? I was struggling with, with sin and bad habit and I I fall into the same sin and I said to God, God, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm, well, you know, you're probably sick of hearing this. But God says, oh, you have to get up again. I'll give you a second chance. And I said, what do you mean second chance? This is not second. This is like the 741th time we talk about this and I fall into the same mistake. God said, no, no, no. I reset the counter. God is a God who forgives and forgets. You're the sin I remember no more, God says. As far as the heaven, as far as the, what's, it, what's the verse says? The east and the west or something? God forgets our sins. This God is faithful. It's always a fresh start. It's a new second chance every time. It could be you are 1,247 second times, but that is God. He forgives us. One day, Jesus was asked, how many times should I forgive? He said, what? 70 times 7. Uh, the, the number 7 is symbolic in Hebrew thinking. It's it, 70 times 7, basically it means endless. And if God demands that from us, He would definitely give that as well. He wouldn't ask something that He doesn't do. How many times would God forgive your sin? 70 times 7, which means unlimited. As we look back and we look at our past mistakes, our sin, the things that God already said, this is not good, don't do it, and we keep doing, isn't He always faithful? And the way that Israel, in their confession of sin, remind themselves of this over and over again. Actually, uh, maybe we will not go to 238, but you can read at home. It's basically the same story. It's narrating the, the history of Israel. Fall into sin, they rebel, and God rescues them, and the same thing happens over and over. But God, there's always that sentence, but God in His mercy, God in His mercy. That's the the things that they read for three hours. Right? For three hours they were confessing their sin, telling about all these things. Can I invite the musician? We almost close. I'll just read to finish. And now our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps His covenant of unfailing love. Do not let all the hardships we have suffered seem insignificant to you. Great trouble has come upon us and upon our kings and leaders and priests and prophets and ancestors. All of your people from the days when the kings of Assyria first triumphed over us until now. Every time you punished us, you were being just. We have sinned greatly, and you gave us only what we deserve. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you. Though you showered, them, though you showered your goodness on them, you gave them a large, fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now, today, we are slaves. In the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment, we are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They have power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. That's the end. 
I should think that they would ask for something. No, this is the situation, and God, please help us. But actually, they didn't ask for that. It was the end of it was the end of the confession. It's like a, a cliffhanger, and it ends there. The people responded, "In view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests." What is it uh, that they commit to make? You can read next week as we go to Nehemiah 10. But that's the end of that confession. It's just a story, uh, just a blabber of story, a long story at that. From from creation to to, to the age of Abraham to Moses and Pharaoh and through the kings and all the way. And the message is one that that we have been sinful, but you have been faithful. You have been merciful. As they look back, you know, I I want us to to take time in our Christian life as well to to ponder uh, upon our walk with God. Have you have you made a journal, for example, of of your walk with God since the the first day you could remember you have a relationship with God? I think you will be amazed when you write things down. And how have you been doing throughout the years? How we have been naughty, right? We disobey him. We've gone missing from his presence. Isn't he faithful? Isn't he forgiving? Isn't he good? When we are in trouble and we are anxious and we complain and we wait, isn't he always there for us and provide for us in good time? I think, like the Israelites, we will be amazed at the contrast of how weak we are and how. Awesome God is, and sometimes we need to do that. They they made the confession so that they are reminded again of the God that they worship, who He is, His character, His mighty deeds, His love, His patience, His grace, His mercy. Every time we do a communion, for example, and we do this in remembrance of Him, in remembrance of Him, despite of our weaknesses, despite of our sins, despite of our naughtiness, uh, our disobedience, and that is Christianity. That's Christian faith. It's not about uh, you know giving you a bunch of rules. It's about reminding you of what God has achieved and who He is, despite of who we are. In regards of that, how are we going to respond to his faithfulness? The Israelites ended their quotation there. That is history. That is us. Nothing to hide. But they renewed their commitment to God. It's not about the law. It's not about, you know, if I'm being good enough, I might go to heaven. The covenant is there. We are secure in our identity with Jesus. We, He has tied Himself to us. But then it's about responding to this good and gracious God. You look back in history and how awesome He is. The history of the church, the history of Israel, which is part of our spiritual legacy, the history of of, of the Christian church from the first century until now, even the history of your own Christianity. Look back, and and I think God would dare you, would challenge you. Look back. Have I ever been unfaithful? Have not I always proved myself to be trustworthy? Hasn't He always been good? 
if you if you jot down the things that happened will you find that ah this this one time god god didn't he didn't fulfill his promise i don't think you will find it god is faithful just like when israel made the records and they're in awe of how awesome god is how merciful he is despite of their repeated rebellions 